0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I'm Dermot O'Carbouille, CEO of Carmichael. Carmichael is a charity that provides supports to other Irish charities, particularly in the area of governance. You can find details of what we do and a wide range of free resources on our website. That's carmichaelireland.ie. You can also find previous editions of our governance podcast on our website or on your favourite podcast platform, be that SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Acast. My guest today is Neil Fitzgerald from Chartered Accountants and um, is Head of Ethics and Governance. So delighted to have you here, Neil. And I'm always interested in getting the backstory because you're in your role now, but you've gone through a journey through life and through experiences. Just give us a few moments about how you've ended up in this role and the sort of things you've done along the way.
1: Well, I guess it it all began dear, many moons ago, after a brief stint on an internship program with McKinsey & Co in San Francisco. I returned home to Ireland to begin a three-year chartered accounting training contract with PricewaterhouseCoopers at the time. And once I qualified there, I remained with them for several years, developing and furthering my experience in audit accounting across a number of industries, including technology, communications, hospitality, media, retail, medical care, but importantly the charity and not-for-profit sector. I guess speaking more than one language also enabled me to work on transactions and deal teams internationally in Belgium, UK and the States. But in doing so I realised through all this experience that my real goal, rather than the accounting side of it and the auditing and the standard side of it, was for leading people to solutions and therefore I made the move into management consultancy in what I would refer to as the professional services industry um, for the following eight years and and that consultancy was with Chartered Accountants Ireland working with small to medium size and larger practices across the island of Ireland on mainly compliance solutions uh, for their firms and their clients. That led me then to my current role as the head of ethics and governance in Chartered Accountants Ireland for, and for almost three years I've been doing that and um, kind of a continuation of my of my former role but in a different capacity that I'm focused now solely on on, on ethics which is very important for the uh, profession, the accountancy profession, and governance, which transcends everything that we do in, in our profession. And there's certainly no shortage of opportunities to lead solutions or projects in this area uh, in that space.
0: Yeah, an interesting mm. journey. But as a light like things, you always you learn and uh, as you move along. So it's all, all these various things are building blocks to, it's uh, to yes, help where yeah. you are now. Mm. Ethics and governance and, and chartered accountants probably wouldn't be sort of natural bedfellows if you think about it. But what does your role entail?
1: I'll describe what the role is, and I'll probably give you a bit of a flavour for, for, for why such a role exists in Chartered Accountants, Ireland. It's not, it's not unusual at all in any professional body in the accountancy world that, 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 this, that this role exists. But I suppose as Head of Ethics and Governance, I'm responsible. I lead the policy, the thought leadership. I coordinate the activities that would be of relevance to professional and business ethics, specifically rather than personal ethics, but professional and business ethics and corporate governance across Charter Accountants Ireland. Now, it's important to understand the context of what that is, because Chartered Accountants Ireland is actually an all island professional accountancy body. It's got over 28,000 members. We're about 20% of them based in the UK, Northern Ireland. we have about 10% based overseas, so it's quite a global membership we have. We're approximately 19,000 or so based in the Republic of Ireland. So out of 28,000, there's only about 19,000 in the Republic of Ireland. It's important as well to bear in mind the context that as a membership body, Chartered Accountants Ireland is itself a non-profit organisation. And a lot of what my job involves is actually engaging across multiple teams and directorates within Chartered Accountants Ireland, but also to represent our external voice and engage with stakeholders, which would be other professional bodies, representation groups, such as the Carmichael Centre, government and Due to the global nature, that could be Irish government, UK government, European Union, regulators, standard setters, and other kind of national, international industry sector groups on ethics and governance. So it's quite a broad brief. And as you can expect, ethics and governance has a relevance not just from a kind of regulatory perspective, but also from a um, access to capital perspective for many industries and enterprises. I mean, you consider one third of our membership are actually in practice and what that means dermit is they they work in accounting and professional service firms be the small medium sized or large accountancy firms one third of our membership work in in that area but two thirds of our members are in business and what that means by in business we mean the private sector the public sector and even the third sector, the charity not-for-profit space. And in fact, what I'd say to you is on the, in relation to the latter, in the charity not-for-profit space, I'd say a larger portion of our members are involved in the charity not-for-profit sector on the basis that they either work directly for a charity, they're employed by one, or many of our members are in public practice are advisors or accountants or auditors to the charity not-for-profit sector, or indeed many of our members, be they in business or in practice, are participating in a voluntary capacity in a charity as a volunteer, they are participating in a non-executive capacity in a charity, not-for-profit, or indeed they can be donors and uh, or beneficiaries of charity. So huge interest in, in 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 the third sector. Now, when you say it
0: makes sense, but you, you wouldn't have been intuitive to sort of say, well, you know, quite a quite a significant part of the role of your sport would be in working with uh, members that are involved in directly or indirectly in, in the charity sector. Um, Ethics part, of am interested in ethics, because for you, how do you say ethics manifests itself or, or fails to manifest itself in, 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 in the workplace?
1: Oh, you've certainly lined up tough questions yeah, today. Um, ethics, first of all, you asked the question, what is ethics? It's an interesting question in its own right. Um, in 2018, I led the development of um, what we call the Concise Guide of Ethics and Governance for the charity not-for-profit sector. So here's plug number one, Dermot. Okay. <laughs> um, so given its focus, the focus of the guide and our commitment, obviously Charcom are to support important work in this sector, the guide is free to download. It's, and you'll find it on our Ethics Resource Center. I'll, I'll let you Google that. But I refer to it because of the question: What is ethics? And I remember when we were developing that guide, we traveled across the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, meeting regulators. Donors, management staff, volunteers, board members of charities and not-for-profits, either individually or in focus groups. Huge amount of engagement in developing this guide. Consider advice from the sector to the sector. In doing that work, we developed what we call a discussion guide to make sure that I consistently asked everybody a minimum set of questions. I'm sure you've done that here today as well. And the question we asked in relation to ethics is, does your organisation apply or adhere to a certain code of ethics? And when I asked this question, more times than not, I was met with a resounding period of... Silence, I would
0: say, yes. Silence, okay. Okay.
1: And the first couple of times I did that, I thought, I'm asking something awkward here, I've put something difficult to them. But after the silence, because I just let the silence sit there, without any prompt from me, a gradual discussion developed on that topic of ethics. And by the end of all the interviews and focus groups, I realized that ethics is something that, if you can't define it immediately, it's something that requires thought and reflection. And what it taught me as well in the charity not-for-profit sector is there is most definitely an appetite in the sector for ethical discussion because while it was met with silence, and once discussion developed, it was actually one of the longest discussions in the entire interview or focus group. It's not any one thing ethics. And I guess the dictionary definition would be the moral principles that govern a person's behaviour or something along that those lines. It's kind of universal definition. My experience of it, however, in dealing with, with organisations, or more importantly, when we talk about ethics, we talk about individuals. The meaning to every individual is more than that. And it involves kind of an exploration of principles and values that are most important to them. Now we often hear in corporate governance about companies and organisations being owned separate legal identities, so I guess you can look at an organisation in the same context as an individual, it is the values and principles that are most important to it. And I think this is how ethics manifests itself in everyday behaviours. And do we think we
0: don't give us sufficient time to reflect on that from time to time, because if you said, do you want to behave ethically, or you know, are we an ethical organisation, most people would say, well, yes, that's our aspiration, or that's what we are, but what does that mean in practice in terms of the culture and the way you do things? You know, and, and Do you need to have regular discussion at board and, and, and at management level of what does it mean to behave ethically as an organisation and an individual? I,
1: I think so, and I, I, I think we go about our... I mean, think from the, mo- the moment you got up this morning to right now sitting here doing this interview, all your behaviours that you've exhibited during the day. And if you are to reflect back on all of them, and critique them, how many of them were ethical, how many of them were unethical, I'd like to think that every one of them was ethical, okay, but you did them without thinking. They were an automatic response based on your, your individual ethics and values. Um, it's a bit more complex than that for an organization because an organization is not one individual. It is made up of a collective of people internal in the organization, but also interacting with people externally. So that's what makes it complex and that's what leads us to what you call the what you refer to there as the ethical organizational culture. So Manny would kind of attribute responsibility, I guess, to the chair of the board to we, we often hear about um, Manny would highlight the importance of the chair perhaps in encouraging an open culture of ethical discussion at the board and establishing the tone at the top for a high ethical standard in the organization. When you reflect on that, you kind of say to yourself, well, that influences the board, but what about the organization? And then you look to to the CEO, and uh, it's the CEO that's probably more central to establishing the tone at the top within an organization because they're the person that's involved, they have daily influence on the organization. So you might put it like this, that the board have overall responsibility for ensuring that the charity or not-for-profit's vision or mission and its values are all aligned with the culture of the organization, but who has greater influence in shaping the culture Will actually differ from one organization to another it'll be influenced by lots in internal and external factors for example the founding values of the charity not-for-profit the staff the regulatory landscape and we've seen that in the corporate charities governance code I think principle 2 they're behaving with integrity political environment social norms trade union participation if it's involved in your in, in your charity the history of the organization the leadership capability of the organization that's where the CEO comes in the level of ambition for people to engage common value shared across the organization from what i'm saying there it's not just about the tone at the top it's kind of what we call the echo from the bottom per se and it's
0: sort of how the organization behaves and manifests itself on a daily daily basis
1: and that relies on every individual and in the it's not it's not a collective on what?
0: Behaviors are tolerated or not tolerated will be part of that in terms yeah, exactly. of calling out unethical or bad behaviours is something part of having that ethical... It's one thing that we do on time to time come across in, in, in the sector, and I don't know if it's a particular problem in the sector, of bad behaviours in terms of bullying and power imbalances. Um, th- I think that would speak to sort of the lack of an, a strong ethical culture in the organisation or adherence to good practice.
1: It could point to the absence of an ethical culture awkward point the absence or lack of ethics of an individual yeah, yeah. so you have to look at the situation it's certainly when instances like that come to light that's when you need the time to reflect and and look at them and, and give them the time not to dismiss them as once-offs they may just be once-offs but they need to be dealt with it's 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 like the saying you, you can have lots of little things that go unchecked and then they all amount to one big thing or those little things get bigger and bigger, so you have to keep everything in check. I think part of the thing is, is, is,
0: because is, I've have I've had a few conversations where people are ringing up with, with issues that they're having this week. So it's it's sort of, but it's calling out unacceptable actions and behaviours appropriately before they fester or snowball into bigger problems that become very complex and very fraught Absolutely. to address. And I think that's part of the, as you said, it's the leadership, but it's also having the the board aligned to that. Thought process and, and and the board the board having those discussions from time to time, if we have ethics, if we have a values, what actually does that mean, and what kind of behaviours do we want to reinforce that, and we can see by our our actions and by the, the nature of the organisation that we are adhering to a good. It's an ethics.
1: important part of risk assessment. It's 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 your reputational risk, and we talk a lot about accountability and trust in the in the sector, and. Um, individual behaviours. I mean the the charity sector is not unique in having a litany of issues that arise from time to time. Look across any sector, financial services, look across the private sector. A lot of sectors have this problem and when you look at the root cause of a lot of these scandals they normally are not by any sort of organisation set up by design to go and do something bad, it's usually by the action of an individual or small group of individuals within the organisation that bring the whole organisation into disrepute, or as we've seen in financial services or we've seen in the charity sector, bring the whole sector into disrepute. So there are important things to keep stock of, um, And part of that, you mentioned calling it out, you can only call it out if you're aware of it. And and I suppose part of the culture, And if you want to go any way towards an ethical culture, you've got to have a culture of Giving people the confidence to report it, speak up. And I
0: think that's another yeah. value. point. Is it, mm. that openness and the channels for people to be able to raise safely those concerns they might have, and um, yeah. and it can be particularly in the charity sector, very small organisations, so there may be one or two key individuals. So where do I go if I have a concern, whether if I'm a volunteer or if I'm a staff member, if part of the problem is maybe the chair and the CEO being very, very close or perceived to be very, very close. So I think organisations need to look at what channels have they got. We, we've a whistleblower, protected disclosure policy, but it was put in place four, four years ago. That gets parked then, mm-hmm. and then but it doesn't become so... To remind people that that is there and how it works um, mm. is the is sort of challenge. Sort of, it's a bit of the tick box, we've done that, we have it, we can clap ourselves in the back, we have a mechanism. Mm. But if people are not aware, are not familiar, are, are, are clear how that, how that would work in practice, you know, it, a lot of its value is, is diminished because of that. So I think part of it is reminding ourselves on a constant basis that we do need to have those mechanisms and those systems and those people that you can go to. Yes. if you have a concern so um, I've seen in the we had a discussion with Louise Thompson when she was over here and she was talking oh, yes. about mm. having a designated member of senior member of the independent member of the board mm. apart from the chair have you seen that work in practice and, 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 and are, what's your thoughts on that
1: I can speak I suppose speaking a little bit from my own experience we talk about significant influencers and I use that language because your significant influencer in your life. We, we have a number of significant influencers. Sometimes you don't actually speak to anybody in the organisation. Sometimes you might speak to a family member. Sometimes you might speak to a friend or a colleague, a fellow accountant, or something like that. Or then within the organisation, there might be someone else you will go to to speak about a, a certain thing. I have ne- I've rarely seen or come across where something is actually escalated directly to the board by an individual staff member. It's usually dealt with at a at a kind of on a colleague to colleague. Or, or, or management level. I think when it starts going to the board, it's, it's a symptom that something's broken down in your process that it's gotten that far up the chain and, and you need to pay attention to it. It's not unusual that you'd have to, perhaps the chair the audit committee as being the recipient of um, of, of a disclosure. Now, it doesn't have to be a whistleblowing disclosure. It can just be a concern. Um, you can have anonymous helplines and anonymous email boxes. People like to speak to people. It can be a verbal conversation. It can be in writing. So I think in reality, that's the way it works. And I guess is having the systems and processes we, we have. I know in Charlotte Ireland, I, I'm not aware of any whistleblowing issues in Charlotte Ireland, but I know we have a peer-to-peer network set up that if you are having difficulty at any stage, a member of one team is having difficulty with a, with a colleague or perhaps with a member or with somebody, with, a, with one of our committee's members, they can go speak to somebody on another team. Just literally have a cup of coffee, near the issue, and sometimes that's all you need. But where it becomes kind of symptomatic of a, perhaps you mentioned the word bullying, or perhaps have witness something untoward, that's when you need to start taking it more serious, and then escalation. If you can't trust your management, which is a bad place to be, but if you can't trust your management, then you're talking about escalating it directly to the board.
0: And the reason uh, why I'm, because my my world in terms of the charity sector is populated by very small organisations. So, you may be only of a small number of staff, and there can be a serious power imbalance between those those staff. So, if you have a manager or a CEO, you may then have a number of relatively junior staff. It's if they see something untoward, how clear easy is it for them to contact a member of the board and to, to, to raise an issue? That's, that's the thing I think that would need yeah. to, in our particular sector, particularly with the smaller organisations, that process needs to be taught through for the smaller ones because you may not have a, a colleague, or a, a, a colleague may be very relatively junior, but both of you are at an unequal power balance to take on a very strong, domineering. Uh, manager CEO that might be doing something that's um, fraudulent or misuse of the the, the 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 charity resources or whatever it is yeah. that that process you need if I would be saying to organizations how would that how would that work for your organization if there was something
1: yeah and and I suppose when we use whistleblowing people think of a very formal legalese process in small organizations it does not need to be something very formal when we're talking about raising a concern. A lot of small charities will we'll still be required to have a board, but it makes communication within small charities should be easier and communication of a policy, therefore, should be well known. But a lot of small charities as well are part of networks. Um, They're getting support from The Wheel, The Charity Institute, Carmichael, and those organisations tend to provide guidelines as well uh, to them or, or, or advise on mechanisms for, for, for raising those things. So you would hope that it's easier within small organizations to identify who you need to go and talk to. Uh, Sometimes in the larger organizations it's more difficult because of the formal structures makes it harder.
0: What sort of things would you like to see this charity sector take on in the whole area of creating that stronger ethical and governance culture?
1: I have a particular growth for the sector. I'm I'm involved in it myself in in, in kind of um, a a, a voluntary capacity um, as well as working for a non-for-profit and doing a lot of interesting exciting work in this area as part of my day job. But when you look at culture in, in, in charities and, and you start talking about values, I often see huge opportunity for the, the sector in the context that their entire purpose of what they're set up to achieve is for the benefit of society in some shape or form. And spot the accountant in the room when he refers to Section 3 of the Charities Act 2009 and you've got your list of uh, of requirements to establish charitable purpose and you've all these very worthwhile causes, be it the prevention of relief of poverty or advancement of religion or from other purposes benefit of the community. So straight away they've got a purpose that is value-driven, as distinct from perhaps the private sector uh, which has a for-profit purpose, which is to make money and maximize return to shareholders. Charities are all about maximizing benefit for their beneficiaries. So they're starting from a very good starting point and um, they're uniquely positioned to identify wholesome values in their work and the fact that individuals who work in that sector or volunteer in that sector are often driven by that purpose. So automatically they're coming from the vantage point of having buy-in to the values. This gives great opportunity for charities and nonprofits to articulate and present their values that kind of support their work but also weave them into their story do I know we've seen that in, in the Good Governance Awards when we're looking at the annual reports. Some charities are better at articulating their values in the annual reports than others. But it's not just about articulating them in the annual report, which is important. It's also about demonstrating how to drive right behaviours in the organisation for the benefit of society. And that is an induction training for the board. Induction training for staff is to come on. Be it in recruiting staff, what are the values of the organisation? Do you have these values? Are you looking for an exciting challenge? And part of appraisal systems—if you have appraisal systems in your charity—you know it's not just what you achieved; how did you achieve it? I mean, charities are ripe breeding grounds for demonstrating values more so than than than, than other sectors. Of course, dearmit, I say all of that, but the challenge is like any other challenge within charities and for profits—is the resources to to put behind uh, putting all that in place. Um, but. It, there's there's impacts to be achieved yeah. of, of, you know, mm.
0: capacity and resources and time um, can be a challenge and I do agree you, know, you, know, you when you are a char you have a charitable purpose so you, you're starting with a a head start in terms of ethical behaviors unfortunately, I would see from that where sometimes people's private view of the and, and the public benefit can get distorted, and, and it becomes more about the individual rather than the the, the, the charity and the organisation. And those boundaries can get get blurred in terms of: am I doing this for myself, or am I doing it for 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 the charity? And sometimes the sort of the the judgments, the decisions, and the actions can get tainted by a mis, mis, misguided understanding of what the best interests of the charity or what's in my own personal best interest. And uh, we've seen, uh, and, uh, unfortunately, some of, some of that. So part of that, I would say, the counterbalance in, in that is making sure that the board is w- attuned.
1: Human behaviour is anything but consistent. And we're all subject to ethical lapses at points in time, usually rationalised by the means justifies the end and all those things. If I might mention that another guide, plug number two, dear mate. Good, Okay. Good. Why not? Uh, and also free download, okay, from our governance perspective. We, we like Centre. free downloads okay. here. Yes. Um, this is all for the public benefit. So we developed what we call a concise guide for directors, which is kind of a five step approach to considering organisational culture. So a lot of what I've actually been talking about, we've actually gone and developed a unique five step approach that if you are a director on a board, so we're kind of aiming it at that level, what you should be considering in relation to, de- to organizational culture in, in your organization. And I guess just to give you a very brief flavor of what those five steps are, and you can refer to the guide for more detail, but the five steps are if you want to promote and develop a culture within your organization of any shape or form, so an ethical culture or whatever culture is you want to develop, before you begin any journey, you must first establish where you are. The first step we would recommend is that you assess the current culture of the organisation in, in that regard. And now that step is not a quick step, that's quite a, a lot of effort is required at that stuff. Even choosing what method, there's lots of tools and methodologies available to do that. And even the choice of that and it requ- requires some thought. The second step, once the first step has been completed, is once you've assessed the current culture, you then go towards evaluating its effectiveness. So here's what you have. So you don't have to look at that and say, it is what it is, of what we have, what works well and what doesn't. What are the opportunities that we can implement to to take advantage of now that can get a quick positive change for better behaviours and what's going to require more effort and behaviours that we want, that we've identified that we need to change. So that's evaluating the effectiveness. The third step is kind of the bringing in your target culture of like where do you want to be so look at your purpose look at the mission of the charity what's it all about so where do you want to be what are the values you want What are the common values you want demonstrated right across everything that that charity does define that in the context of what you have already then compare what you want with what you have identify the gaps you can see the accountants in me here you oh, can yeah, the yeah, pluses and the minuses there, yeah, yes. um, identify the gaps so then once you've identified the gaps, you quickly realize that you can't do everything, okay, whether you're a private sector with lots of money or you' or your charity sector with no money, um, you can never do everything. So you identify the gaps, and the exercise there then is to prioritize what it is you're going to focus attention on in a kind of uh, in, in a change program. We hear the words transformational change sometimes, which sounds fancy and very Harvard business like transformation changes is when you're in a dramatic situation where you need to actually transform your organization most cultural change is not transformational it's actually refining little parts of the organization little tweaks here and there to how we do things so not all change is massive and then the fifth and final step is obviously to close you've identified what you're going to do and the fifth step then is kind of you implement your change program what it is go about doing it and implementing it and you know the beautiful thing about five-step approaches and, and, and these types of diagrams is they're, they're, they're cyclical. So at the end of your close the gaps you go back and say, have I achieved? and How do you do that? You go back and assess your culture <laughs> and you start the whole thing over again. So it's, it's quite a useful guide. It, these concise guides, they're, they're written with lots of nice pictures and short are short. they're, they're are
0: available on, on, on your, your, your website. What, yeah, what, so, just put just the website. Just well,
1: for... the, the easiest way, so we have an ethics resource centre and we have a governance resource centre. The easiest way to remember it, our website is www.charteredaccountants.ie. For the ethics resource centre, you go forward slash ethics the governance resource center you go forward slash governance
0: and there's lots of more useful information there's there loads there. of stuff
1: on there loads of good stuff on there
0: excellent it's been fantastic and uh, really really informative as well so i enjoy i enjoy these podcasts because I, I, i'm always learning so thank you very much neil that has been fantastic and um, good luck with that very valuable role and, and it's good to have ethical and well governance compliant uh, um, accountants out there that are so valuable to the sector so thank you thank you very much thank you for listening to our latest Carmichael Governance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be of great benefit to us if you could give it a rating, as that helps to create greater awareness of these podcasts. So until the next time, slán gáfol.